Hi, uh, this is Darren here, and I'm joined by Andrew. Hello, hi. Um, so very, very quickly, just doing a quick intro in front of our podcast. Last year, Andrew and I did a very insane thing for a very good cause, uh, where we recorded an 18-hour live podcast to support the Irish Cancer Society for Daffodil Day. That's right. Um, Huge day um, each year for the Irish Cancer Society, where a very, a very large portion of their fundraising happens that day. Now, yeah. this year, of course... It's a little bit different. Yes, this year it's been cancelled. Um, it's been estimated that they raised about €4 million Euro, uh, through Daffodil Day to account for 20% of their annual budget. They only receive 3% of their funding from the state. They're usually dependent on this. Um, COVID-19 crisis has meant that they've had to cancel and suspend this year's Daffodil Day. And the implications are huge. It's a charity that is very close to my heart, very close to Andrew's heart. Yeah, um, we both know people who have had or who, who have um, a, a cancer, people who've suffered from it. And the services the Irish Cancer Society provide are, are kind of immeasurable in terms of improving quality of life and improving awareness and supporting um, as well. So what we would like to request from listeners, um, and again, completely understand, um, if not, but just to, to raise awareness of it, if you do have a little bit of money and if you do enjoy the podcast, even if you don't enjoy the podcast, but also have a little bit of money, um, we would like to recommend that maybe you make a donation uh, to the Irish Cancer Society to help make up the difference. Um, every little helps. So you can donate uh, directly at cancer.ie, which is the website. Uh, but you can also donate via text if you're based in Ireland um, as well. And if you text the word cancer uh, to 50300, that number again is 50300, and that will make a couple of euro donation uh, to the Irish Cancer Society. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time, and we hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. And this week, we're discussing a story of tension. We're discussing a story of two men on a mission that will drive them apart and lead to an explosive climax. But enough about the 250, we're actually here to discuss George Clouseau's 1953 French classic, Wages of Fear. And to join us for that discussion, we have the wonderful Tony Black. How are you, Tony? I'm great, Darren, but I did think, as you were describing that film then, that maybe we were doing the uh, Tom Arnold, and I think, is it Joe Pesci film, Gone Fishing, from the 90s, you know, and you, so you've completely thrown me, I prepared for that, um, so I don't know what we're going to talk about now for two hours. Problem is when we just send out summaries rather than actual titles of films we're discussing. <laughs> yeah, that, it's Mar- Mario, Mario and Luigi take it in turns to, to, to get to the place with the fire and put it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah this, is, this is not quite the Super Mario Brothers movie I was expecting. Uh, no. For better or for worse. No. Um, <laughs> but no, so it's... Yeah. Um, it's, it's <laughs> but no... Th- <laughs> Thanks for having me on, though. It, genuinely, joking aside, it's really nice to be back. Thank you. It is, and we invited you on for kind of several reasons. First of all, you know, circumstances being what they are at the moment, we've kind of been reaching out to remote guests, and so inviting people on from, you know, overseas or international correspondents, so to speak. 
But we've been wanting to talk about this particular movie for a little while now. Um, and one of the reasons why is because I think among your myriad of projects that you've launched is uh, The New Wave, which is a, a podcast which is going to be looking at 70s New Wave Hollywood cinema, I believe, starting in the late 60s. Uh, you know, the wave of cinema that started with Bonnie and Clyde and arguably ended with Heaven's Gate. Um, and the reason why we want to talk about Wages of Fear, which is on the 250, is that we thought it would be a nice springboard to talk about William Friedkin's Sorcerer, um, which we'll be crossing over with you and talking about next week. Um, so had you seen The Wages of Fear before, Tony? No, I had seen Sorcerer and I was aware of the you know 1950s French touchstone. But yeah, I hadn't seen The Wages of Fear until recording this podcast. So it was both new to me and obviously relatively familiar because of the fact that Sorcerer does remake certain aspects of it even though it goes in a different direction so it was interesting it's very interesting watching it we've had this experience a couple of times with guests actually where we've asked guests what do you want to talk about and they're like yep yeah, we want to talk about this film and then we sit them down to say well what made you choose this it's like well i never would have gotten around to watching it otherwise <laughs> you know a good approach to this sort of thing um and actually i have to admit one myself as well because i had not seen the wage of fear i've been in a similar situation to you i had seen sorcerer because uh, it had got a Blu-ray remastered release back, I think, 2014, and had been sort of reevaluated as a lost 70s classic. And we'll be talking about that with you next week. So I'd seen Sorcerer in that context, but I'd never seen Wages of Fear. Um, and kind of so it was interesting to go back and see kind of Wages of Fear in that context. Wages of Fear is an absolutely fascinating film to talk about just historically. There's a whole bunch of kind of interesting stuff, just a very brief history because it's worth kind of unpacking. It's obviously based on the novel by author uh, Henry Girard, who's better known as Georges Arnaud. Um, he had a storied life, to say the least. He was arrested for the mur murder of his father, aunt and maid in 1941 in Vichy, France, at the age of 24. Spent 19 months in prison, was released, pronounced innocent, and moved to South America, where he apparently worked as a prospector, a smuggler, a bartender, and a truck driver at various times in Venezuela. Wow. Um, that... That was the basis of the kind of novel. That's why he wrote The Wages of Fear, the book that would become that. Um, it was, however, snatched up by Georges Clouseau, the, the French director. And Clouseau had a kind of a similar kind of background in terms of coming to film. Born to a middle class family in 1907, he began his career as a critic. And then he moved in, became a lawyer. Then he became a screenwriter. Then he went to a sanatorium due to a tuberculosis related break or tur tuberculosis related. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get there in the end. There, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, he spent some time in a sanatorium for some TB related uh, for TB related breakdown. He was a terrible crime fiction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. But not Michelangelo or Leonardo, uh, or usually Mario or Luigi. Yeah, there is a um, moment in this movie where I thought of the secret of the ooze, and like, <laughs> like what if it's what if this is ooze? Yeah, no. <laughs> um, but yeah, Clouseau is kind of an interesting character because he he began filmmaking during the uh, Nazi occupation of France. He, in fact, worked with a German production company. Um, I think they're called uh, The Confidential or something like that. Did but you he say produced... he had a similar background to, oh, wait, to, wait. to, to the novelist? <laughs> yeah. so he far, did not it's murder like, his parents. He was a critic um, and, um, and a screenwriter. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then a lawyer. And we're waiting. <laughs> waiting for the, no, for the things that are at all similar. 
Yeah. Yeah, waiting for the point of connection where he murdered his father and mother and was arrested for 19 months before fleeing to yeah. South America. I'm getting there. I'm, a, I'm getting there. Or a prospector. <laughs> what do you do? Screenwriter. <laughs> Screenwriter. It's practically the same thing. Um, okay, fine. Um, but Clouseau basically made uh, two movies uh, in Nazi occupied France, in Vichy France, uh, one of which was the Who Done It, The Murderer Lives at 21. Uh, but the second one was the 1943 movie Le Corbeau, which was controversial. It was a poison pen movie, and it managed to be hated by absolutely everybody. The Nazis hated it because they thought that it was unfair to them, which is quite an accomplishment. Uh, the French resistance movement hated it because they thought it was unfair to the French. Um, and the Fritchi government hated it because they thought it was unfair to collaborators working with the Nazis against the French resistance. What do um, what do Nazis say when they think that something is unfair to them? They do they say, "Hey, we're not." <laughs> um, <laughs> Goodwin's law, baby. Goodwin's come on, law. we're not that bad. Yeah, we're not as bad as. Oof. <laughs> I guess. He was he was hated he was hated by the Catholic Church. So when uh, France was liberated, he was immediately blacklisted. And by the way, this is where the connection begins, Andrew. Ah. He was blacklisted. Yeah, there we go. Um, and had to he was told that he could not make movies anymore. Um, and this was despite the sort of support of writers like say Jean Paul Sartre and Jean Cocteau uh, coming out and speaking in his defense. So he actually went to South America um, with his Brazilian-born wife uh, Vera Gibson Armado. Um, he tried to make a documentary in South America. He couldn't get it to work, but he came back to France and then sort of decided that he would work on The Wages of Fear. He would adapt The Wages of Fear, um, which is interesting. The film was a divisive film when it was released, to say the least. Um, it was a massive success at the French box office. It was the fourth highest grossing film of the year. A lot of French critics loved it. Um, it actually did very well in Britain. It's considered to be one of the films that brought foreign language cinema to Britain, in large part because large portions of it are A, in English, yes. B, don't feature any dialogue whatsoever, which makes it quite accessible to audiences who maybe aren't used to reading subtitles, which is quite effective in that sense. It had a bit less success with Americans, um, who saw it at the Cannes Film Festival, um, Time Magazine described it as the most evil movie ever made. <laughs> Variety said that there was no way that this could get a release in America because of its communist sympathies. Um, and more than that, it came under criticism from the French New Wave, uh, from writers like Truffaut, um, who basically described it as daddy's cinema, is what they called it. They called it the tradition of quality, complaining that it was too formally brilliant uh, to be considered true art that it was very rigorous, it was very carefully put together, and therefore didn't capture the naturalism of the human condition, which is kind of fascinating <laughs> as well. And it's ironic that like the, the, the new wave writers, Cahier du Cinema, which heavily criticized all of Clouseau's work, but absolutely adored Alfred Hitchcock, despite the fact that Hitchcock himself has talked about how much he wanted to steal from Clouseau. In fact, Hitchcock tried to buy the rights to The Wages of Fear, but found that Clouseau had actually beaten him to it. So this was my first time watching it. Um... Andrew, was it your first time watching it? It was. I've just finished watching it. Um, I've been delaying you guys. Um, yes, <laughs> I just finished watching it. I didn't realize how long it was. Um, I was like, <laughs> okay, between six and eight, I'll be able to watch it. Surely a movie can't be over two hours. But no, this was this was the first time watching it. Um, yeah, I should know that movies are over two hours. <laughs> particularly movies that ended up on the list as we, well. Yeah, um, we watched The Irishman. <laughs> yes, we did. And we, we have promised to watch at some point in the vaguely defined future The Gangs of Wazipur as well. Oh, that's um, right. Yeah. Damn it. 
<laughs> it's not too late. It's not too late. Andrew, get in the truck. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted that 2000 episode podcast, right? <laughs> um, but yes. So um, the interesting thing about it, though, actually, is if listeners want to watch this, actually, because you mentioned watching it for the first time tonight, worth noting it's available in multiple places. You can obviously rent it from Amazon if you're in the States. It's on Criterion, uh, but it's available for free online from the Museum of Cinema. Um, so you can actually watch it if you want for free. We'll include the link in the That's show. That's how notes. I saw it. Yeah, Dar- Darren, Darren very helpfully um, gave me gave me the the um, the the free and legal link. So I, I was I was I was able to watch it. I said that really shadily, didn't I? Free. And legal. <laughs> um, well, to, to be fair, that the um, you have to the, be very careful message. when saying the word legal because it sounds so much like illegal. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, that was one of those great text message conversations where I was like, Andrew's like, "Can I watch it?" And I'm like, "Yes, you can get it from iTunes." And I'm like, "No, you can get it from Amazon." They're like, "No, I hope you haven't paid for it yet because you can get it for free." Um, <laughs> it's like, "Welcome to the inside of Darren's stream of consciousness." So, right, we've all watched this just for the first time recently. So I think before we ask the three questions, um, just very briefly, kind of what were your takeaways from it? So, Tony, what's your immediate response to having watched Wages of Fear? What did, you know, you said you recognized bits of Sorcerer in it, but like, what was your quick takeaway, your two lines that are summary? I loved it. I, I, yeah, I loved it. I thought it was really uh, brawny and uh, emotional, actually more emotional than I expected and mythic in certain ways and beautiful and beautifully i mean the, the i watched it on um on the bfi blu-ray release uh in the U- that the uk have got and it looks stunning in that format uh, so I, I was i was really quite blown away by it i have to say and i i, I expected it to be really good uh but it was maybe even better than i thought it would be to be honest yeah, it's worth noting the cinematography is absolutely astounding. Its use of black and white imagery is completely mm. striking. Uh, the angles to... as well, like, um, it's 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 incredible um, because of the kind of effect it has on the watcher, and a lot of that is is down to the um, the craft of it, like the way the way the way the camera kind of turns. Um, it's a it's a real experience. You'll you'll, you'll feel you'll feel like you've died five hundred times um, <laughs> over the course of watching. Over the course it. of I mean, watching it, yeah. I mean, this is worth kind of mentioning very very briefly because this is like one of the textbook examples of kind of something Hitchcock said. Because Hitchcock, in his discussion with Truffaut about like structuring films and storytelling define the difference between surprise and suspense. He said, surprise is if you're watching a movie and two people are talking and all of a sudden the table blows up and they die. And that catches both you and the characters off guard. And that gives you a couple of seconds of gasping and oh my God, what just happened? Hitchcock, however, said that suspense is superior to surprise. And the key to suspense is two characters talking at a table and the camera showing you that there's a ticking bomb underneath the table. And what I think I really like about Wages of Fear, and it's the basic premise of the movie, so it's not really a spoiler, is that not only does it do that level of suspense, but it makes the characters at the table aware of the ticking bomb, strapped to the ticking bomb, unable to get away from the ticking bomb, and manage to sustain that over the better part of about 90 minutes kind of in its second half. And it's just an astounding, it's a riveting kind of suspense piece of cinema. It's 
breathtaking. Uh, I've watched it two or three times um, over the course of the last week in order to kind of like to try and parse my feelings on it. But it's amazing how even watching it in quick succession like that, it still holds up. It still grabs the attention, still holds the attention. It's striking. Yeah, it feels sometimes like the stakes are greater for the audience than for the characters as well. Yeah. And well, that was one of the observations from the writers, where, where like, sort of from the critics, the critics at the time. The I think it was was it uh, Basil Crowley in the New York Times argued that when you're watching it, you're worried that the cinema is going to explode. Even <laughs> you rationally know that that's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah, because the the, the um, yeah, it's it yeah it it it's it's kind of I don't know I I feel like watching it that I couldn't be too worried about these people <laughs> I was worried about what was happening <laughs> you know what I mean um they, well, that's actually one of the criticisms of Clouseau is that he's arguably been defined as a, a writer and director who puts plot ahead of characterization who's very much interested in the mechanics of what's happening rather than who it's happening to I think it was Pauline Kael who described this as an existential thriller and she made an argument, which is kind of interesting. Maybe we'll we'll delve into the spoiler zone. But her argument was that because of the stakes of the movie, and just very briefly, the movie's about four men who agree to move several, you know, large amounts of nitroglycerin across a South American country in four, in two trucks that are ill-equipped to do it. Um, she argued that because of that circumstance and because of there's so much luck involved, because the stakes are so high, and because the fate of those men is determined not necessarily by their skill or even their moral character... Um, it has this effect of kind of numbing it. It creates a situation where whether you're brave or scary, whether you act with certainty or with hesitation, it may have no impact whatsoever on the outcome. And Kale described like the paradox of the film and what makes the film so fascinating is that despite the fact that these characters' fate have nothing to do with who they are or their kind of beliefs or, or kind of how they act or react in particular situations, somehow means that how they react in those situations and who they are is the only thing that matters. Um, and it's kind of an interesting contrast. And I think it, I think it is there in the film. I think that's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It, it, it feels, it feels like it is because there is a real sense of existential sort of dread about the whole thing. You know, these are, these are guys who are in, if not, if not a form of purgatory as such, they're in a, they're at a point of an end point in, in a way they're, they're kind of, in this South American backwater, they don't have any way out. You know, a lot of them are at the end of their line in a way. And then this mission, this journey, offers them a chance to sort of try and escape their their circumstances that they're in. But everything is overlaid with this sense that no matter how far they travel, they're always going to get to the same place, which is their their doom <laughs> basically and that and that that follows them all through the film it's a really kind of i don't know if it's the right word to use but it feels like a really absurdist kind of set piece where you know there um there is nowhere to go from 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 where they are and um and the um the opportunity is 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 to kind of um die yeah, 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 yeah. Much like that. <laughs> yeah. The stakes are there's 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 a great war uh, there's a great war reward for like success or failure. I think um, <laughs> is that reward death and yeah, exactly. inevitable death. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I feel I feel <laughs> It's great cuz that isn't a spoiler. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, all right, then, before we jump into the spoiler zone, three quick questions to get us started. So, Tony, do you think that The Wages of Fear, and by the way, the, t- the French title is, and I apologize to Francophiles for this, Le Cellure de Peur, which literally translates as the, seller, uh, the Salary of Fear, which suggests that, you know, even in France, fear is a much more regulated market than it is in the US. But anyway, do you think The Wages of Fear is one of the 250 greatest films ever made? Yes, I, I would say it is. I'd be, I'd be, I'd be surprised if it wasn't, given how it has influenced a lot of different things. It's probably one of the more well-known uh, pictures from France of that era. You know, just sort of before the uh, the Nouvelle Vague came in and the French New Wave and stuff like that. So yeah, I, I, I think it's probably on there. Uh, and Andrew. Well, yeah, D- Darren, um, I think in France, they recognize that fear is a public good and, and it, it can't be left in the hands of the, the free market. Um, <laughs> so it, it's provided by the government. Um, no, um, I, yeah, I, I, would, I would agree that, that, that this belongs on the top 250. I thought it was a, um, an incredible movie. It's tremendous. It's very effective. A, a, movie, a movie that a lot of people have 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 talked about lately, and a lot of people uh, have warned about lately, was uh, is uncut gems, and kind of um, the war. The warning is that it's a kind of an an, an anxiety attack. Um, but I I I felt like this was even more effective in that kind of vein. So um, yeah, it, um, I suppose that comes into the. <laughs> Uh, but yes, be uh, be aware that that's what it is, and that's what it's very good at. Yeah, and I, I would agree with that, Seth. And I think there probably should be a Clouseau film on there. Um, I think that, like, again, I haven't seen, I hadn't seen this up until recently, and I have yet to watch uh, Le Diabolique. But those would seem to be the two that would be in contention as the most influential films in his filmography. And I think this is absolutely stunning, and as you know, completely belongs on a list of the 250 greatest films. Um, all right then, and then second question, Tony. Um, all three of us having literally just watched the movie, do, would it be on your own personal 250? So your 250 favorite films. Do you know? I think maybe it would be. Yes, I think I think it I think it might be because I think there's this really. I mean, the story in Sorcerer speaks to me, but and this is similar in many ways. But I I found this more more moving actually. I found it more of a moving piece, and. I think there's there's just something about the whole nature of this story and the way it's all put together that just really appeals to me. So yes, I think I think it would. I don't know what what position it would be, but yeah, I'm gonna say yeah. And Andrew, again, having literally just watched it, and you know, I'm not sure if you you have a list yet of 250, but would it be on? <laughs> um, I think I think I probably wouldn't put it on my list. Um. I suppose, but if 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 I needed a movie, if there were parameters of the list where you have to have some um, a movie um, of a godforsaken hellhole uh, like filled with disgusting garbage people, then um, I, I I think this might be the one. I, I like that. I like kind of what's competing in its class. Like, yeah. what, what, what is Wages of Fear kind of muscling up against? Who does it have to like follow out of a bar and murder to get its place on your Let's list? Let's make this spicy. Let's spice <laughs> things up a bit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I would kind Who's of. Who's it going to hand a gun to? 
<laughs> call out. Um, I kind of this is interesting because I would actually kind of agree with. Uh, I'd lean more towards Andrew actually in this case, where I like it a lot. I think it's great. I would hold up, well, okay, not to jump ahead to the next question because that's usually what somebody else does. But yes, um, I, I recommend, recommend it too, it. Darren. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Perfect. Now I don't feel bad saying it. Now I actually don't feel bad saying it. But uh, yeah, not not to jump too far ahead. But I would absolutely recommend it. I greatly enjoyed it. But I actually think I preferred Sorcerer. I think Sorcerer is a much leaner film. I think Sorcerer is a it it's something that works better for me. And like when I'm watching Ways of the Fear, I can't get Sorcerer out of my head, which is unfair, given that I know that, you know, Sorcerer is allegedly, according to Friedkin, just an adaptation of the same novel. It's not. It's an adaptation of this film. <laughs> but, um, yeah. like, while it's unfair for me to look at Wages of Fear and say, well, I like, I, you know, I saw the remake first and it kind of imprinted on me, as, you know, as an impressionable film person. I think I do prefer Sorcerer to it. And I think Sorcerer probably has a better claim to being on my own kind of personal list. And I feel bad having two movies about men moving dynamite through South America because I feel like, you know, maybe my list needs a bit more diversity. Um, you know, there's only so many movies about men moving dynamite I could put there. Nitroglycerine. Uh, yes. Is it, uh, well, it, is, 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 it, is it the same thing? Is it dynamite? Well, it's dynamite, and then Sorcerer, not to get too spoilery, it is dynamite that's leaked into the sacks. It's like it's become mm. wet and hasn't been stored properly. And so the actual oh. boxes are explosive, not to get that too spoilery. You don't want to get dynamite wet, because it's, uh, it's no good then. It uh, dynamite explode. Yeah. The, yeah. The, um, I think I learned this in the young, young, young Indiana Jones. Was that a thing? Was that it? Yes. Yeah. There was a show. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yep. That was a TV show. He didn't um, make that up by George. Okay. There was also a, a James Patrick Bond Junior, wasn't there? There was James yeah. Bond Junior. Yeah, that yeah. was a cartoon and not yeah. produced by Steven Spielberg. Anyway, um, third question. He went to Dublin yeah. once. <laughs> Did he? Mm. Harrison Ford or Indiana Jones? Um, Indiana Jones. Um, <laughs> no, like. The, the well, what would Indiana Jones want to do in Dublin? Um, Fucking hells! Fucking yeah. hells! Like, that's literally the only thing in <laughs> take the Vikings flash tour Dublinia. Um. Yeah, yeah. What was um, his his friend um, Indiana Jones's Belgian friend Rennie? He was like in Dublin's fair city where the girls are so pretty. Um, <laughs> Was uh, was his uh, his reminder to um, which is set it up nicely for I assume he probably met some Dublin girl. Um, anyway, <laughs> why doesn't the third film star? Yeah, Alison Duty. The third film stars Alison Duty, which is probably the connection there. Okay, yeah, yeah, the Dublin yeah. girl. Um, I feel like Andrew just need needs to do a, a, a um, Indiana Jones. Young Indiana Jones spin-off podcast. I, th I feel like this is destiny here. Yeah, call it the Chronicles. <laughs> um. But uh, all right, so third question, Tony. Uh, would you recommend <laughs> if listeners have not seen Wages of Fear that they watch Wages of Fear? Absolutely, absolutely, hundred percent. Like without a shadow of a doubt, I think it will. It won't be for everyone. It won't be everyone's cup of tea. It is very dark and pessimistic and uh, quite brutal in many ways and sad and in some ways depressing. Um, it is not a laugh a minute film that you can throw on on a Sunday afternoon, you know, but as a, 
uh, a piece I of... I don't know, Tony. Some of it is hilarious. <laughs> well... Provided that you hate people. It <laughs> will, yeah. you hate people, you will find it yeah. hilarious. Actually, that's true. Misanthropes, of which Clouseau was one, from what we know... Um, we'll love this. So if there's a little bit of Victor Meldrew in you, you know, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to think this is a great film, but no, I think, yeah, hundred percent. Any fan of cinema, I, I, I recommend this. I, I didn't see it as you, as we say before today. And I feel, I genuinely feel enriched now having seen this film. So yeah, hundred percent. Um, Actually, worth noting in terms of some of those kind of criticisms that you mentioned, Tony, the New York Herald Tribune called the movie a pitiless thriller with a sadistic street. The Christian Science Monitor found it unusually deplorable, cynical and heartlessly brutal. <laughs> Robert Hatch's Nation Review was painfully ambivalent. I have rarely been so gripped by a picture and never so disgusted with myself afterwards. <laughs> in any moral sense, The Wages of Fear is a bad picture, cruel and essentially meaningless. So, you know, a barrel of laughs. He had only ever seen regular movies. What would they think watching Sorcerer, though? That's Well, a, well yeah. I think Sorcerer makes sense in the context of kind of 70s cinema. Keep in mind that this was... Well, we'll talk about the American release of this in the spoiler zone, I suspect. But keep in mind that at the time, this was a bit of a kind of a shock. And particularly, what's interesting about Wages of Fear is that it was positioned somewhat as a counterpoint to American cinema. Because after the Second World War, you'd had all the American films that had been produced during the early 40s kind of flooding into Europe and doing great business in Europe. I think that, you know, Gone with the Wind kind of stormed across the continent in the late 40s, for example. But even films like, say, Casablanca did very well after the war ended uh, in France and nations like that. And a large part of kind of Wages of Fear was getting a kind of a European cinema together involving Italian actors, uh, French actors, French directors, planned to shoot in Spain, but ultimately shot in the south of France and trying to create something that was comparable to an American kind of, you know, pseudo blockbuster, an American kind of epic, those early films in the 50s that were kind of large in scope and large in scale. And I think was that this shot in France? It was indeed. What? Um, it was about... <laughs> yeah, it was shot in France. They actually built the entire sort of village, the entire South America, basically, sort of setting in the south of France. They were supposed to shoot in... Uh, Where did you find Spain? all those bamboos? <laughs> like, um, <laughs> why, why didn't they just go to South America? It probably would well, have been the easier... <laughs> Well, we'll talk about maybe why going to South America to shoot a film like this might be a bad idea next week, I suspect, uh, when we get to William Friedkin's attempt to replicate this experience. Oh, yeah. But Making movies in South America are always a bad idea. Um, yeah. I, I think Werner Herzog had problems with that as well, didn't he? Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, and again, it's 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 notable that Sorcerer is often mentioned in conversation with Agar, the, the wrath of God, in terms of massive follies. Uh, but again, that's something we'll discuss kind of next week. They originally wanted to shoot in the south of Spain because they figured the south of Spain would actually have weather that would allow them to shoot mm. the film there. That it would actually have kind of sunny weather that they could use to kind of shoot yeah, outdoors like and stuff. Yeah, like La Mancha. And kinda... yeah, sort of like tropical environments. Like even today, films use Tenerife to do the surface of the moon, for example, because it's it's so dry, arid, and kind of like very striking to look at. Uh, but apparently Yves Montand, um, the lead actor um, who is an interesting character we'll probably talk about a bit in the spoiler zone, but he vetoed that uh, because he didn't want to film in Franco, Spain. Um, so he basically ah. forced them to shoot in uh, France, which is kind of interesting. Um, the film's production was notoriously troubled. Um, it was shot in, began shooting in 1951. Um, then a series of bad accidents happened. Um, the director's wife was hospitalized for a cough. 
Um, the rains washed away several parts of the set. The director broke his ankle. The film ended up shooting for a full year longer than intended, running over budget by 50 million francs, um, which is quite a lot of money back then, even mm. like by the rate of, yep, yeah, even allowing for the FX rate at that time, that was still a lot of money. At one point, his two lead actors managed to contract conjunctivitis while wrestling <laughs> in a kind of oil bath. Um, and had to be hospitalized for several days during filming. Um, so, yeah, it had a very, very troubled production. Sorry, what? Schedule. Pardon? Just go back. Director broke his ankle. No, last um, bit. After that. <laughs> yeah, his two lead actors... Two lead actors had to be hospitalized with conjunctivitis after wrestling inside um, a giant oil bath, which makes sense when you watch the movie. But even <laughs> even allowing for that, the conjunctivitis oh. comes a little bit out of nowhere. Why were they wrestling? I, I think like... they were messing around on set. Okay. Yeah, that that's <laughs> that that is a lesson actually. That is important. Yeah, very important kind of work, did, health, play, like, safety. Yeah, playing around. It's all fun and games until, yeah, you get conjunctivitis. Part, part of me kind of loves, though, that, like, the film didn't shoot in South America. It used France for South America. But apparently when it came to asking its lead actors to roll around in oil, it was like, yep, we can do that. We're not going to just <laughs> die. It's gonna, not going to die food, you know, drop food coloring into porridge or something. Actual oil. Uh, but yes. So, Andrew, would you recommend that people watch this if they haven't already? Well, I do I do prefer the movies. Obviously not the last one. It's a good it gives you a good kind of a I guess you you understand why Sean Patrick Flannery never really became the the uh the star that he was maybe destined to become. But he does have some charisma. I mean, he's very watchable. Oh, would I, would I recommend Wages of Fear? Um yes, yes I would. Um, be 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 warned. It it is anxiety inducing, um, but yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I really fun did is enjoy an interesting it. Word yeah, it yeah, it is. It is because it's very <laughs> bleak. Um, yeah, but like if you're if 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 you're able for that, then then yes. I, I would agree with that assessment. I will hardly recommend it. You can run out, watch... Well, okay, we'll stay in your home probably at the moment, but watch <laughs> it. You can watch it for free. The links are in the show notes. We'll be tweeting it out as well. It's well worth your time. It's great fun. Um, And I saw it on Blu-ray and I, I watched it on Criterion Channel as well in high definition. It looks striking. It is it's absolutely beautiful. I'll hardly recommend it. With that in mind, then, we will segue neatly into the spoiler zone. <laughs> Tony, mm. what is Wages of Fear about for you? <laughs> I think Wages of Fear, for me, is about the masculine struggle to escape 
your own sort of circumstances. I think that's that's what I talk about, particularly masculine uh, approach to this. The idea that these are men who have, in some sense, been emasculated by their circumstances, whether it's economic circumstances in that they are in this backwater for various different reasons, um, whether it's that they you know, run out of money or they're, you know, a wanted, a wanted criminal or whatever. And that's something that's a bit more acute in Sorcerer, which obviously is next, week, next week's conversation. But in this film, it feels like these are men who believe they are either destined for something more or should be able to get back to where they were in their lives. And they find it difficult to exist. You know, at the beginning, characters like Mario and... Um, in some sense, Luigi. <laughs> I still can't believe that they're called Mario and Luigi, but there you go. That's a that's a conversation for later. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, but yeah, and that they're you know they're considered like tramps. They're considered like vagrants in this you know dirt, dirty backwater town. And then the whole film is about them being admittedly uh, abused and abused by the American capitalist system of of this company who basically just need men to go out and risk, you know, almost die or go on a suicide mission to transport this nitroglycerin. But to them, it's about, I think, their quest to find, get back to what they were or what where they should be. And ultimately, that's, as I say, Clouseau's, <laughs> Clouseau's mindset is that that's just not possible. Like, he doesn't believe in the... I don't think he believes in man's ability to do that somehow. So I, I, so I think, for me, that's what I really took from it. It's about this masculine, if not maybe not quest is quite the right word, but struggle to be a man almost in that kind of world. Because it's a very masculine film. It's very. worth knowing that there's really only one speaking role for a woman, and that role is played by Linda. Yeah, Linda, uh, played by Vera Portuguese Clouseau. for for beautiful. Ah, is that is that Vera Clouseau? Yep. yep, yep, that is. That's an interesting choice by the director, um, particularly <laughs> some of the angles that he uses at certain points mm, in the film. Yeah, um, yeah jarringly good looking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wondering what on earth is she doing here? <laughs> um. <laughs> well, it, it, Clouseau had a habit of involving his kind of family in his films. Uh, Vera Clouseau only appeared in three films. They're all films made by her husband. The film was also co-written by uh, Clouseau and his brother Jean, although his brother Jean actually uses a stage name, so it doesn't look like nepotism. Um, which is, you know, always handy as well. But it is. It's He's a ridiculous thing. <laughs> Jean Estefez, uh, written by Jean <laughs> Estefez. Um, but no, it is it is a very, very masculine film. And it's very much coded in that way as well. And it's kind of interesting because you have this idea of masculinity. The film has been accused of being many, many, many things. And we'll probably talk about some of those later on. But it's been accused it, of being misogynistic. Will we play bingo? Oh, I was going to say misogynistic. <laughs> I was going to say deeply misogynistic. And I was wondering, would, would, would I... Would I and it survey says... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, now, 
it, it is worth it is worth noting the observation that Sight and Sound made reviewing it in 1955 when it was released in the UK. Their response is it's been accused of being like, you know, anti-American and misogynistic. But the truth is, it's like Dirty Harry. It hates absolutely everything. It's anti-everything. It's basically the movie. <laughs> yeah, um, that, that's, that, that's what Bukowski uh, said. Because he, he, he faced that kind of accusation, perhaps rightly. Of being um, misogynistic, and he's like, "Well, if if I was going to have to choose, I'd probably prefer women." <laughs> um, <laughs> like, if it seems like I hate women. It's probably uh, accurate was his take, but but definitely not more than I hate men. Um, so yeah, he 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 felt like that that um, that excused his misogyny. There's, there's definitely a bit of, there's definitely a bit of that in this movie as well. There absolutely is, particularly the way that Linda's kind of introduced on her hands and knees, kind of scrubbing and crawling over to Mario so he can pet her on the head like a dog and stuff yeah. like that, and kind of the way that it plays throughout as well. Now, to and the way in which, when later on it tries to um, literally emasculate Joe, one of the ways that it does it is by turning him into Linda, as so yeah. like she's, uh, she's. She's running along the side of the truck and she's clinging on and trying to climb in and stuff like that. Yeah. And that scene later on replays with Joe. And the idea is that that leads to the conversation later where Mario is like, you're not even a man. Maybe you were a man when my grandpa was alive, but you're just a woman, um, which is kind of a very. And again, like part of it's like, you know, maybe the film doesn't believe this. Maybe this is just the characters talking, but it does kind of permeate the film in an interesting way. That's kind of, you know, maybe uncomfortable, maybe meant to be uncomfortable if you're being charitable, but kind of does feel very, very strong and very kind of heavy throughout. Mm. But anyway, onto the onto the film sort of tackling a kind of masculinity uh, and kind of the ways in, in which it explores that, because it is one of the interesting things about it was that it was heavily cut for the American market. Um, the American version of the film was only an hour and 40 minutes long. Um, and lots of stuff was cut out. And we're going to talk about some of the, the political stuff that was cut out later. Some of the characters that were moved later. But one of the interesting things that American censors latched onto, and I'm kind of curious if you guys got this as well, watching it, uh, was the perceived homoerotic undertones in the <laughs> relationship that existed between Mario, Luigi, and Joe, particularly in the early course of the film where the the editors and American critics were particularly uncomfortable with the uh, close relationship between the three men and kind of how that played out in the first hour of the film. Mm. Yeah, you can see it. You can definitely see it. I mean, there's, you, you know, there's a lot of embracing, you know. I mean, it, it's also something that happens at the end of, um, towards the end of the film when Luigi is, uh, they don't, he's not dead, you know, and they think he's dead. And like, uh, Mario plants him like uh, i thought he was kissing his, li his lips at one point he does the old classic you know kiss kiss on the cheeks and i was like wow is he going into the smacker here so it was like uh by the way I, I know i know luigi looks more like uh mario from the mario brothers but he also <laughs> he also has that that hat it's the yes. same one <laughs> yeah. it's exactly the same one which is remarkable um They've insisted that there is no relationship between the film. <laughs> Nintendo has said they were not inspired by the film in any way, shape, or form. But it's great, when, even when you look at the images of Mario and Luigi standing beside one another, where Mario has the little mustache on, and he's kind of rotund, and he has the little cap on, and Luigi you know, is taller, skinnier, and standing yeah. beside... Sorry, Mario is small, taller, skinnier, and standing beside him. He looks very much like Luigi. It is rather disconcerting uh, watching it. Um... And he's a builder as well. He's a tradesman. 
like 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 Mario Mario and Luigi are plumbers. Yeah. So you know, I think it all began here. This is the the Mario Brothers movie that you didn't know you needed. <laughs> and there's pipes in this movie. <laughs> there's pipelines. And things that explode for no reason. Yeah. yeah. I just don't believe Nintendo. I think they absolutely got it from here. Yeah, 100%. And like death raining from above. So, you know, like a character or a rock jumping on you means you're dead. Yeah, I I think this is all there. Yeah. But yeah, no, just in terms of how the relationship between Mario and Luigi is defined, where it's like we share a room, he does all the ironing and cooking. And the way in which Mario kind of latches on to Joe when Joe wanders into town, where he's like, well, I was going to hang out with Linda. Are you angry? And Joe's like, you're not that important. Um, Joe saying things like women are a waste of time. And Luigi saying things like make yourself at home in my pants. <laughs> Mario saying cut it out. We're not married. Um, yeah, the yeah, moment yeah, at which yeah. Mario and Luigi have a bit of a kind of a spat, at which point Mario takes his ticket, his little sort of emotional ticket from over his bed and storms out. While Luigi kind of compensates by going out on the town in his best wares and buying champagne for all his buddies at the mm. bar to show just how well he's doing. And then even scenes <laughs> like when Mario and Joe are driving before Mario realizes kind of how much of a coward Joe is. The sequence where he's like, can I get your sweater? Can I put your sweater on? And even kind of the gentle, kind of almost tender kind of dabbing of his forehead when he thinks the malaria has come back. It's kind of interesting how, you know, is that stuff meant to be kind of gay coded? Is it meant to be kind of homosexually coded? Or is it just a sense of like Europeans being more comfortable with tactile contact? Um, and, you know, Americans kind of overreacting to that in, in a way that sometimes you can perceive them doing in, in regards to kind of physical intimacy. Well, it's definitely not a heterosexual movie. <laughs> Like, <laughs> yeah, like, like, yeah, I, 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 th- I think it is. I, I think, I think that's exactly what it is. You know, the whole thing has a far more open and sort of fluid, if not, you know, overt approach to sexuality, but it is, it is far more Europe. It's really striking, really, watching a, a, a film from like the early 50s, a black and white film from the early 50s, and it not be a film from America because you really do see the difference. You you see, I mean, it, it, even like, you know, you mentioned uh, Linda on her hands and knees like a dog, but even the fact, you know, you, she's, she's, if I'm basically her, her breasts are hanging out of that top. Now, that kind of the way the camera as at one point, and even the way the camera leers at her, where she's kind of bent down yeah. and kind of like her ass face yeah. the camera. That's what I was And the say. camera's just like, yeah. Yeah, we're gonna yeah. hone in. Oh yeah, that. yeah. yeah no, that. it's yeah. it's it's very erotic in a way that kind of the kind of American movies aren't in the way in the way that they kind of um, of that time. Yeah, um, were yeah, yeah, definitely in a way to show her. But also, but Mario as well though. Mar- Mario is like, you look at the way he's dressed. Like he's got this top on that right. basically just exposes his entire sort of very good you know physique. But it, it's it's almost. It is almost like a, he's he's going out to a gay club. <laughs> way. he's got that very sort of loose fitting sort of clothing on. In that sense, he's very relaxed. He's very laid back, you know. And that's that's just not that's. I don't think that's something you saw. You know, he would he would in Americans called a cinema. I think you would have you he would have been far more. He would have been returning Linda Linda's affections, or he would have been you know being a bit yeah. abusive. But he would have been a a clear heterosexual character there would have been no you know we knew no question about <laughs> it you know yeah yeah not at all whereas in this there you know you do wonder whether or not there is definitely some sort of whether it's 
romantic feelings between him and Joe or just a really strong masculine connection. But there's definitely something there that's more than just friends, I think, you know, as the film goes on. Yeah, I, I think I think he probably likes women whenever there aren't any good men around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's how it seems. Anyway, I did like the. Um, I think it was Mike D'Angelo at the AV Club who pointed out that like this was this was a European action hero in response to the American action hero, which is that he has the kind of wife beater shirt on, like <laughs> Bruce Willis, right. but he also has a neckerchief. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like this is how comfortable we are with our sexuality. Um, and in terms of stuff that Tony was saying, yeah. in terms yeah. of kind of uh, things that you could never get away with in American cinema, I kind of I was on the the movie palace with Carl um, Sweeney, a mutual friend. Mm. A little while ago, talking about Gilda, and one of my things about Gilda is that it's it's intensely homoerotically coded, but it goes out of its way to insist that these two men are competing with one another because they both love the same woman, not each other. To be absolutely clear, um, and it's kind of it's it has a kind of a gay panic that this you know completely avoids and actively kind of like wants to kind of bait and play with, which I find absolutely fascinating. Again, in a movie from 1953, I'm not sure that Sorcerer could have gotten away with a no. relationship between its male characters that is as kind of <laughs> openly um, ambiguous as this relationship is here, which is absolutely kind of striking um, in terms of kind of its portrayal of masculinity. To be honest, if, the, if there was a director who was likely to try his hand at that, it would be William Freakin, given <laughs> when he made films like Boys in the Band and Cruising, you know, so, but but there is, yeah. that, but that isn't, but that isn't in Sorcerer. I don't really pick up that same sort of subtext really in Sorcerer. Not that we're talking about that film, but that's definitely jettisoned. It's far more apparent here. Uh, but yeah, no, no, it absolutely is. And I mean, even ignoring those three characters, even you have Bimba, who's kind of sitting in the car with Luigi, and Lu and Luigi gives his big speech about women. Bimba, who is this kind of like blonde and perhaps the most defined of the set, the man who wanders around without a shirt on. He wanders around with an open jacket yeah. and his physique on display. <laughs> his kind of bleached blonde hair in there. And he's like... He's very defined. He's a 100-year-old orphan. <laughs> Like, there's almost too many specifics. About about Bimba's past, this German living in South America after the Second World War. But yeah, even he's like, I don't like women. Um, I've never liked women. And it's like, well, now. Um, and again, the fact that, like, he's... The fact that he's the only one who's not caught up in this weird triangle with Luigi, Mario, and Joe. And even he's like, yeah, women, not quite my thing. Which is fascinating. I'm actually, I'm actually surprised that William Friedkin did The Boys in the Band. Because... Having 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 seen this, it feels very much like a. I know I know it's like an an um an adaptation of uh of a play, but um it feels very theatrical rather than kind of cinematic. Um, and I'm surprised that it wasn't one of these cases of a theater director taking it from kind of um a. Uh, Broadway and just being trusted to make the movie. I'm surprised. I'm surprised that it's that it that it's as freaking as the one behind it because I've seen it and I was kind of yeah. I, I, um. Anyway, sorry. Maybe maybe it's intentionally kind of um, uh, theatrical. Mm. I don't know. I also love the bit with Mario and Joe, by the way, when they're talking about like if they're going to be selected for this assignment where they're auditioning drivers. And Mario's like, you drove like a charm. And Joe's like, you were better. And it's like, oh, stop you. Um, which is, again, 
something that's, that's very rare to see in these sort of like hyper macho because again like joe is defined as hyper masculine he's the guy who takes out the gun when he's confronting luigi and again mario is defined as being that sort of obnoxious kind of anti-hero he's a jerk he's you know he's self-interested he doesn't really care about linda at all he's only really interested in himself it's fascinating to have that level of kind of complexity and nuance in a film where these characters are still defined as hyper-masculine. And the thing with Joe is a particularly interesting example because he was played by, uh, was it Charles Vanell, I think? Um, but he was a silent film actor um, who started working in 1912. And it's kind of interesting that so much of the film, apparently it was offered to several actors who all turned it down because they didn't, they thought it was a, an unflattering role. And Vanell was like, no, 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 I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take any work, any work whatsoever. <laughs> he apparently won Best Actor at Cannes uh, in 1953 for his performance. And it's a really great performance. But it's kind of interesting how even that is kind of tied to the idea of kind of masculinity as something kind of old and outdated. As Like he's he's posturing, he's defined as, you know, you know, maybe you were a man in my grandpa's time, for example, um, which kind of suggests that there's kind of a sell-by date on that, which is, is interesting. Um, in terms of other stuff uh, that's going on in the film, um, one of the other things that was cut from the film was the anti-Americanism or the perceived anti-Americanism was cut for the American release mm. because it's set in a country that is ambiguously and maybe not Venezuela. <laughs> where where there's an oil company that is ambiguously but absolutely not standard oil it's southern oil thank you very very much and kind of the exploitation of kind of the locals by this character o'brien um and o'brien's kind of interesting because he's i was actually kind of very surprised at the portrayal of him. and it's funny as well because it's it's the opposite of the american dream it's everyone arriving from all around the world in a place where there's no opportunities yeah. and it's a complete fucking dead yeah. end. Like, um, but everyone speaks like different languages and it's it's just crap. <laughs> and you're just um, going to stop yeah. there. It, what's it, he described, this is the Satra, the kind of like Jean-Paul Satra's America, where it's, it's like prison. Yes. It's easy to get in, but yeah. there's no way out. There's no exit. Um, and again, it's, it's one of the interesting it's, discussions. It's Hotel California. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. But again, it, it has that kind of sense of, it's been compared to the anti-Casablanca is how it's been <laughs> described in some respects. Because yeah. you do have that kind of Tower of Babel approach. You have this idea of a place that is, you know, very much this kind of almost dystopian environment populated by people who are wandering elsewhere, who meet up in the shady bar. And, you know, instead of it turning out to be these people who are actually heroic underneath it all and who find themselves reunited with lost loves, it's just populated by assholes who are willing to exploit <laughs> one another and take advantage of one another in the hopes of getting ahead. But don't worry, they won't, because the universe is a cruel place with absolutely no compassion and empathy, um, which is kind of, again, striking. There's that sense of this yeah. being an anti-American... like. When I say it's an anti-American film, I mean it's like almost a rejection of the films that Hollywood was putting out at around this time or like 10 years earlier. It's like, well, do you really want a movie like Casablanca? And again, people compare this to say the work of Howard Hawks, um, The Treasure of the Sierra Madrid, for example, is a film it's frequently compared to. But it's much more relentlessly kind of cynical. It's very, very bleak. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's like anti-positivity. Yeah. It's kind of, if you believe in yourself enough, you will die. <laughs> um, like, um, but if you don't believe in yourself enough, you'll also, you will die. also die. <laughs> yeah. Think, yeah. Actually, a lot of it, I think, is born out of... Um, if you if you work hard, yeah, yeah. you will die. You will die. You won't get but if you don't work hard, you will also die. <laughs> I think a lot, a lot of it was born out of... Um, 
as I said before, Clouseau's sort of pessimism, which you know, a lot of which stemmed from, you know, his experience during the war, during the fact, you know, after Le, Le Corbeau, he got he was banned, you know, by the French um, authorities from making films for years, and I think he just he just doesn't believe in that American style of you know destiny of belief of that yes yeah if you achieve you will succeed i think he believes that ultimately we are all just um cockroaches which is you know the yes. way he opens the film mm. you know with with the the cockroaches and the boy tormenting them on a string i mean for me that's a big that's a big metaphor really for the whole thing for the whole film you know these these guys are just cockroaches being manipulated in many ways by in this case the americans although it's the, it, I mean, it, I don't necessarily think, yeah, like you say, it, it's anti-American overtly, but I think there is that sort of subtext that, you know, the character of, of O'Brien, I think, doesn't he say something along the lines of, you know, well, they don't have anybody to care about them, so they won't be missed, you know, ex- expecting them to die, yeah. basically. They're not going to come bother me. Yeah, they're not, their yeah. families aren't going to come bother yeah, exactly. me. They don't have any people. So there's no there's no care for any of them. I think that, that that's the... It's the kind of anti-capitalistic or the yeah. the the whole idea of the world that um, that they've kind of um, uh, created, I guess. By um, you could kind of apply it to urbanization as well, about everybody kind of like leaving the communities that they're in and going into these cities where they don't know anybody and there's no sense of community and they don't know the land that they're on and. Um, Except in this case, it's even worse because the city isn't even finished. The skyscraper is just sitting there, right? Half yeah. built. Yeah. yeah. Like it's like they moved into a city, but the city never materialized, which is somehow even more disheartening. And I think that um, that sums up that yeah, it is far more, as Andrew says, anti-capitalist than it is directly anti-American. I think it's more about it doesn't believe in this system that at the time is you know post World War Two the the beginnings of that kind of system that will will you know, trigger an economic boom over the next, you know, um, 15 years or so before the 70s kind of happens will, you know, particularly in America, will give people a sense of prosperity and that they're starting to achieve the dream and things like that. And then it will be clouded by all these different elements that, you know, uh, cause a little bit of that faith to, to, to wither away. So it's almost like Cluzo is at the start of all that going, it's not going to end up how you think, guys. So just just expect it to go wrong, because <laughs> it will. And he's right. Imagine the worst thing that could happen, and it <laughs> yeah, will happen. And it will happen. Um, and he's usually right, <laughs> as awful as it is. Um, just very quickly, on, on the character of O'Brien, before we move on, O'Brien I actually find to be a fascinating character because he absolutely is this kind of embodiment of kind of cynical American capitalism to an extent. Yeah. You know, there's a point where he says, put the blame on the victims. They can't yeah. feel it anyway. Yeah. He hasn't a chance in his condition. That's a break for him. For us as well. Oh, yeah. The, the, what is it again? The, the boss sends his regards. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, was a very, that, was, that was a very funny moment. Where he, like, um, he's all kind of um, in bandage. <laughs> <laughs> and your man just wanders out into this giant flame that's kind of raging and threatening to consume the mountain as well. There, there is a lot of dark humor in that. And a lot of the dark humor derives from that sense of like the world being a completely uncaring place. Like all the characters somehow magically missing all the warning signs, like the sequence where they leave out a kind of a handkerchief to warn the truck behind them to slow down. But then this kind of native individual just finds a handkerchief kind of lying in the middle of the road. He's like, hey, free handkerchief and barely used too. Um, and kind of just picks it up so that they miss it. Yeah. Uh, but just like 
on the the O'Brien character, what I find interesting is that despite the fact that O'Brien is the ultimate embodiment of capitalism and that he's the one who's pushing this, like his his suggestion with the trucks is that, you know, well, what if they don't make it? We'll just keep trying until they get through. Where like somewhere down the line, there's a franchise like the Fast and Furious where finally like Wages of Fear 14, they actually make it all the way to the fire. <laughs> um, but, like, but yeah, what I find interesting about O'Brien is that, you know, while care might be a strong word to use for how he feels about these things, there's a sense of him actually understanding that the wheels of capitalism need to keep turning in order to generate profit to allow him to continue to live. But there's also a sense of kind of almost empathy something resembling empathy through it because when he's in that meeting where he's like well look if they die we'll just keep trying until they succeed and thank goodness they don't have unions because unions could stop me from doing stuff like i'm doing right now he makes a point to kind of call out the executives and say you will pay them and you will thank them when they're done and even kind of earlier later on where he's like with joe he's very much trying to protect joe he's like look I would be doing this if I were 20 years younger, but I'm not. And I understand my limitations and I'm actually looking out for you. Uh, but even the sequence where Bimba is kind of like where they almost drop the nitroglycerin and Bimba kind of like shatters the glass in his hand and he kind of assures him that everything is okay. The sense of O'Brien being, O'Brien's not a monster. He's not like a Robocop villain. Yeah. He's, not, he's not like, he's just a guy who understands how capitalism works, how the machine needs to keep on churning. And, you know, sure, he'll try to be a decent guy within that, but he's, you know, going to throw you under the bus if he needs to, which is kind of an interesting and slightly more nuanced portrayal than you might expect for a movie labeled as anti-American. He, yeah, he's like the Bob Morton. And and thank you, by the way, for 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 making the, the Robocop reference this time. <laughs> it's a division of labor, Andrew. We have to kind of split it up every once in a while. Um, but like, with regards to this idea of capitalism, one of the things I find interesting is the idea that happens throughout where people are constantly dehumanized. Um, and this mm. happens in a number of ways. So the, the most obvious way is the one that Tony alluded to, which is that opening shot, which is one of the great opening shots in cinema in terms of this is what the movie's going to be about in microcosm. I hope you're ready for two hours and 27 minutes of this, which is a child tormenting four cockroaches by tying them together against their will, losing his attention, wandering off to go look at some ice cream that he can't afford, turning round to pick up the cockroaches that he was tormenting and realizing that instead a buzzard has arrived and is eating them alive, <laughs> uh, which again is, you know, one of those great, this is what the movie's going to be like. But throughout the, the movie repeatedly compares human beings to animals. You have the sequence of the start where the you, the, you, 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 you have the person there as well begging for arms yeah. um, to like in the kind of establishing shot. Sorry. Yeah. You, you even have the sequence then where your man's throwing one of the, the, foreigners is throwing stones at a dog saying i hate mutts yeah and that's immediately juxtaposed with linda crawling over on all fours so that you know mario can nuzzle her head a little bit like she's an animal or a pet you have sequences where like mules are being dragged around carrying loads on their back beasts of burden which again obviously sets up the idea of these four characters having to cart nitroglycerin kind of around them as they're kind of driving across the country as they're carrying this load that will you know only serve their masters which is kind of interesting kind of as it goes along and you have that kind of the second thing that i find interesting in terms of its approach to humans and how it kind of dehumanizes them is you have this sense of the people becoming indistinguishable uh from the means of of kind of production in which they operate. So Luigi um, gets a terminal diagnosis quite early in the film from a doctor who determines that he has lung cancer or some sort of like respiratory He's illness. He's full of concrete. He's becoming... That's it, exactly. 
Yeah. That's it exactly. He's been breathing in the, the kind of structures that he's been building. He's been laying cement, but as he's been doing that, he's becoming part of his body. And later on with Bamba, you have the sequence where Bamba actually has to kind of guzzle the nitro out of the trunk, um, out of the sort of container, and kind of siphon it off so that he can fill it and then blow up the boulder halfway out. Interestingly enough, actually, one of the theories about what happened to uh, Bamba um, and Luigi, Bamba and Mario, sorry, I keep, wait, Bamba and Luigi, I keep (laughs) confusing the characters in the movie with the characters they look like in the video (laughs) game, but the sequence with Bamba and Luigi, um, where they just explode, um, one of the theories about what caused that is that Bamba siphoning off the nitroglycerin, Mm. basically the canisters would have been filled to the brim to prevent splashing, right? So that they can't splash if there's no air in the container. However, by siphoning off some to blow up that boulder, he made sure that one of the containers was not fully filled anymore. Ah. So it would have just splashed as it went over the smallest possible kind of hurdle. Um, I feel like I feel like that uh, Jerry can was then in Mario's truck because he was the one who brought the, the Jerry can back. That's fair, actually. Yeah. And it was kind of sitting down with him and Joe. You could see it near them as well. And actually, one of the things that I find interesting, we were talking about like the capitalist themes of the film and the film's sort of anti-capitalism. One of the things that I really, really like about Maybe, maybe, maybe sorry, back to the kind of fan theories, maybe the jerry cans were stacked and then there was a slot where there was a jerry can missing so that the jerry cans would kind of slide over and backwards. And then boom, um, it just happened. <laughs> and then boom, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Darren should be directing a remake of that. That's my pitch. That's, it's just like, and then boom. That's Darren's pitch for uh, his Wages of Fear remake. Um, but one of the things that, like, just in, in terms of capitalism, in terms of it seems like that, one of the things I really like about it is that over the course of the film, it continually makes characters obstacles to themselves, obstacles to each other. So, like, when characters are trying to accomplish things over the course of the film, generally speaking... You know, obviously there's the uncaring universe and the horrible void that does not care for your existence. But because you're all competing within the same rat race and you're all competing against one another, you end up screwing one another over just to get closer to the void. So over the course of the film, you have the sense in which human beings are their greatest obstacle to other human beings' success. This is most obvious kind of with, you know, Joe obviously murdering the fourth driver to take his place. But even when they're kind of driving, there's a sequence where the two trucks almost ram into one another. But even as they're going along, the sequence where uh, Luigi and Bamba kind of like almost break that kind of jetty, which makes it a problem later on uh, when Mario and Joe want to use it. But then it's most obvious kind of towards the climax of the film, where you have... The sequence where you have Bam- Joe in front of Mario. That's quite. I was going to get to that. Yeah, the, but the sequence where Bamba and Mario, ba- Bamba and Luigi, sorry, blow up a truck, and that ends up creating a lagoon of oil that like they have to cross. So like, if that truck hadn't have blown, mm. the ride home would have been relatively safe from that point. But even after that, there's the sequence where, as Andrew pointed out, Joe finds himself in front of the truck that uh, Mario is driving. And Mario can't slow down because he needs to build up momentum in order to get out of the little lagoon that he's found himself in. So he has to actually crush Joe under the wheels of it. And in fact, actually, the worst part of it is that after that happens, he explains that he couldn't get the truck out because he hesitated. So it's the worst of all possible worlds. He does both run over Joe in order to get to where he needs to be or where he wants to be. 
but he's also not ruthless enough to kind of push ahead and kind of press that accelerator down and get out of that lagoon in the way that he needs to, which again is is one of those things about how horrible like this sort of rat race is to people. How <laughs> he still would have killed himself on the way back anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so none of this matters. Um, yeah, like... What a complete idiot. <laughs> After everything we've been through. Yeah. What? And his truck gets so mashed up. <laughs> it's incredible. Okay. It's so good. The relish that the film takes in this. Cause I actually... The way it goes, it goes, bang, yeah. bang, bang. Yeah. And you're like, ah. And then the flaming, like, the, the chassis lands and then the axle lands and then the flaming engine lands as yeah. well. So it's like, and you know, in case you're going, oh, he's fine. It gets ragdolled about the place yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. And then you're like, I'm sure he's fine. And then you get the intense close-up of his blood-covered <laughs> hand with the ticket stuff. And it's like, no, 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 he's definitely dead. I actually have, like, on rewatch, I wrote down on my notes, everyone is so happy that Mario is alive. Where you get that kind of blue Dana sequence <laughs> where like everybody in the film is just delighted that Mario is alive <laughs> and you have the sequence of like the characters and like even Linda who's been like abused and cast aside but even Hernandez who's like the bar owner who has consistently been like his consistent character trait is how much he hates Mario even he's like I'm gonna hold No but he likes people who have money That's fair <laughs> and the guy with money is coming right here to my bar so yes that makes sense actually but yeah, I kind of love how the movie kind of goes all in on the super happy, all-American fun ending. Um, right? <laughs> just, just at the last minute has Mario realize, oh no, oh no, oh no, and then just hammers you with it. Uh, which again is something that US this critics... Three-way three parallel just came off. And, and, <laughs> and then it just like ends. Like with, with no, like it just ends. To quick, thin done uh, imagine being in the cinema imagine being in the cinema watching that and you'd be like oh, right okay uh oh dear <laughs> what, what you really need is a sequence like psycho where like hernandez or or sorry or o'brien kind of wanders up and explains to the audience that he got cocky and that was his big mistake i've seen it happen all the time as he puts a cigarette in his mouth. <laughs> yeah. that's what was really missing that's the worst part of psycho but absolutely is you should probably stop before the psychiatrist shows up and explains the entire plot of the movie that you just watched but yeah, I kind of like that relentless kind of cynicism. Again, this is something that American critics really, really, really disliked uh, about the film at time of release. And many of them actually spoiled the ending of the film, almost kind of out of petulance, where it's like, why? Why would you do that? What was the point in making me watch this movie and then doing that to me? And it's kind of fascinating because the movie is so ruthlessly cold-blooded and doing it to the point where like O'Brien like literally says to him, you're tired, we have a chauffeur. He'll take you there. You don't have to drive yourself in case you don't get that this is all Mario's fault, which is kind of like wonderful kind of rubbing salt in the wound uh, in, in the sense of the film's kind of commitment to what it's doing. I remember I was I was quite taken aback the first time I watched it, which I think is exactly what the movie's mm. going for. What about yourself? What were your reactions first time seeing that? Yeah, I, I, I was like proper. I, I, I was, uh, wow, okay. okay. Like, e even though, like... I, I had a feeling it was going to do similar to Sorcerer in some respects, It having seen that first. At the same time, I was <laughs> just left by the end going, well, okay. Like, but, but I wasn't, I didn't feel like it was a, it was a bad choice. I feel like it was, it was in step with everything before. 
I, I didn't feel Absolutely. I didn't feel robbed. I didn't feel cheated. I didn't feel like it was oh well, hang on, that that's a twist at the end. I was like, no, okay, that that makes sense. That that's depressing and brutal, but it makes sense because the whole theme of the film has been that these people don't get a happy ending, you know. And it's almost it's done in it, such it a would have been such a cover. Yeah, no, it would have been, and it's done in such a like like you say, a, a almost hilarious way, you know, at the end, and the way that Eve Montandi's driving that truck. It's like he's. It's like he's. It's like he's on drugs. You know, he's like. It's, it's so. But it, I think that's intentional. I think it's Clouseau intentionally taking the piss, quite frankly. And I, I think that's what's great about uh, one it. One of the things I absolutely like about the movie, kind of when we look at it, kind of like as as a whole, is that almost every time, like characters tend to die, not when they're like you know, at their lowest ebb, unless they commit suicide like poor Bernardo, which we'll talk about in a moment, I suspect. But it's always, like, the moment where characters seem like they're home free and are actively enjoying themselves. So you have Bamba, who's, like, shaving in the front seat of the truck, going, ah, if I die, at least I'll be a presentable corpse. Am I right? Am I right? And then, boom! Yeah. Um, But then you have, like, obviously, like, you have Mario, who's like, yeah, look, I'm home free. Home free. Dude... Does uh, Bamba's a one hundred year old um, orphan who, um, when when he draws his own blood, explodes? Because <laughs> it's made of nitroglycerin. Now. But I he think he needs more shape. specifics. Yeah. <laughs> I love the idea that yeah, his his blood is actual nitroglycerin. Um, he's that much of a man because the film does make that point. Louis, um, Luigi's like, you know, we we fake it, but you just kind of have it. As Bamba, I don't know, bites the head off a raw steak or raw chicken in the seat beside him or something um, while shaving, but also growing stubble back instantaneously. Yeah. Um, Nobody nobody blows up when they're inappropriately smoking. Yes, and there is a <laughs> lot of inappropriate smoking. <laughs> like over and over again. Which I, I kind There's of... also drink drink driving too, yeah. which which we see in loads of movies. Uh, in terms of inappropriate smoking, I actually love that the only part of Bamba that survives is his dinky cigarette holder. <laughs> like that's the only evidence that he exists yeah. in the end of the film. If anything, cigarettes will keep you safe. If only they could make like planes out of what they make um, cigarette. cigarette holders. That, that's of. definitely and a even, sign, though, isn't like, it? That there is a dark irony to this film. Uh, I think that that kind of thing is very much. It, it's not quite black comedy, but there's a real sense of irony in that. Like you know that that's the only thing that makes it. It's 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 not funny. It's not played for a joke. But it, when you think back to it, it's you know. It's really quite twisted in many ways, you know. <laughs> uh, and I absolutely love how, like, European the movie is in terms of smoking. Because it's like, Bamba just got away from this highly volatile substance. And the first thing he does is lights himself a cigarette and then uses the cigarette to light the fuse <laughs> that he's going to blow. Yeah. But even the sequence where, like, Mario has, like, just watched his friend die. He's covered in crude oil, like, from the, you know, the... the the pump they're kind of only is dragging his friend out and he's kind of wandering towards this explosive oil well and he still finds time to light up a cigarette before <laughs> collapsing over and somehow doesn't manage to set himself on fire i kind of adore how committed the movie is to kind of like it's just smoking is as natural to breathing yeah. as these people it's like when you're transporting that much nitroglycerin smoking around it it's just you know it's just a thing that you do what would life be without a cigarette what yeah and it's like let's go 
let's go at like 40, maybe 45, 50, but definitely not below 40, but let's smoke all the time. <laughs> like, um, kind of everything else is so kind of specific. You know what? You know what's weird, actually? I've got this maybe quite sort of morbid habit of for when I watch a film that's fairly old, I like to go onto IMDb and look up when everyone died. It's a bit twisted, right? It's a bit weird. But I, very I in keeping with the film that we've just watched. But very in keeping with the film. So I tend to do this if it's a particularly old film because I'm a little bit fascinated by it. When, when do they die? Because I'm thinking they must all be dead by now. Anyway, it turns out lots of the cast... Bob Hope died, didn't he? But Yeah, <laughs> yeah he did. Amazingly, you know. But I think um, a lot of these guys actually died young. A lot of the actors actually died young. Like um, the guy who played O'Brien died like months after filming. And they were all within did, their yeah. f- their forties oh, and fifties. Yeah, like Bimba was only in like his mid fifties, I think. Same for uh, Luigi. Um, I think uh, v- Vera Clouseau had a heart attack when she was like forty six and died. So like, I-, I was I was like, wow, all these—that's weird. <laughs> like they all, almost all of them. Do- the irony is, the only one who lived the longest was Joe. <laughs> he's the oldest guy in there so he was like 96 before dying of conjunct- conjunctivitis related uh, mishaps yeah. anyway that's that's a, that's a side point but it just yeah it may, maybe it tracks with the fact all these people seem to have a death wish you know <laughs> in this film it's, uh, they, they all had the stalker effect um, is it, it um, well I mean didn't, they didn't, didn't shoot near Chernobyl was it, there were, <laughs> yeah there was an actual reason why all the cast of stalker died yeah <laughs> But yeah, and in terms of, of other stuff that I kind of like about the film is I kind of love how it commits to its its pointlessness and its emptiness and its absolutely nothing means anything-ness quality of it. So you have the sequence yeah. where like, we joked about like fan theories about what happened with Bamba and Luigi, but that's because the film doesn't tell you what happened to Bamba and Luigi. There's actually a moment when they arrive at like the charred remains of the truck, which looks like something from, a, again, a nuclear explosion. And we'll probably talk about that in a second. But there's the moment where like, you know, um, where, where Mario asks what happened to them and Joe responds I don't know we'll never know yeah. even they didn't know um, or the sequence where like as Mario's trying to keep Joe alive and he's trying to he's trying to remind him of his time in Paris and he's like there was a fence and what was behind What's the fence, beyond the fence? <laughs> well, yeah. yeah nothing there is nothing behind <laughs> the fence <laughs> on Schlement. Um, just kind of wonderfully, wonderfully bleak. It's kind of this wonderfully hollow, kind of like wonderfully, kind of almost like committedly nihilistic. Not like playfully nihilistic. Not like those nihilists no. in the Big Lebowski. No, this is actually like somebody who has thought about the world as the way that it is and kind of committed themselves to that worldview. Because it's worth noting. Um, and it's, it's like, what, what was beyond the fence again? Nothing <laughs> was beyond the fence. What was be- what what was that again before the fence? Oh, there was nothing before the fence either. <laughs> what was the fence? The fence wasn't anything. <laughs> what is a fence? Fan. <laughs> F-I-N. <laughs> Sorry. But yeah, and it kind of it I kind of one of the things that I find interesting is that this existed kind of in nineteen fifty one through through the early fifties. And it very much exists in the shadow of the atomic bomb, and you have that kind of sense of living in a world and again this is probably something that's very uniquely kind of french and european because the cold war is obviously the arrival of america um, as a global power <laughs> and 
And he's like, I thought you were about to say living libido. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's what happens to Mario at the climax. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they should that is that what he's Adam. doing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Make you live a crazy life that will take away his pain. <laughs> like a chassis set aflame. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. Um, but no, it, it's more that it kind of exists in the shadow or the specter of kind of nuclear annihilation. You know, the whole kind of like, and again, this is kind of uniquely, arguably uniquely kind of French European perspective, because we talked about how much of the film seems to be kind of a, a, a sense of like France and the rest of Europe looking at America and going, well, now, because there's all this Coca-Cola placement, which is just fantastic, because um, you have all these like Coca-Cola freezers and Coca-Cola advertisements like the bar doesn't have a roof, but it has posters for Coca-Cola, <laughs> which I absolutely adore about it. But like there's a sense of, you know, the Cold War, which was kind of heating up at the time. You had the sense of it being something that existed between the United States and between Russia. And you had Europe kind of caught in the middle, obviously decimated by the, the horrors of the Second World War and kind of trying to emerge as a player and obviously that would be something that would happen in kind of the 60s and 70s the emergence of the european community and kind of the relations that existed sort of there but there's a sense of powerlessness to it all um and there's a sense of like that being a key factor here where you have these kind of european characters they're you know italians and, and frenchmen and they also speak german and english but they're kind of driving around with these trucks which are basically giant bombs but bombs that could go off for no reason whatsoever and would leave them kind of completely devastated. And again, there's that sense when you look at the devastation that of that truck when it blows up, when Bamba and kind of Luigi's truck blows up, that it looks almost like, you know, the, the footage that you would see of somewhere like Hiroshima or Nagasaki, where the, the trees are all kind of gnarled and twisted and there's these huge shadows yeah. on the ground and there's no sense and of... The, like, the, the, the scary thing about, like, like the, the, the pipe, yeah, big... Um, solid steel pipe looking like kind of one of those trees or or or, or twigs looking kind of like like some natural thing that's been um, just bashed rather than like a man-made strong kind of a structure yeah and I mean even, exactly yeah even at the end even when the truck as kind of Tony pointed out like the truck doesn't just like careen off the edge and crash into the ground it's torn apart and kind of shredded and bits and pieces of it land at the bottom at different times it's like it has been kind of torn asunder almost by an angry god it's like twisted like paper which is kind of horrifying to see and there is that kind of sense yeah. of and all the matchsticks of it just kind of like yeah crushing yeah and it's kind of it is is kind of horrifying to see all of that kind of set aside. It is worth noting actually one of the kind of controversies around the film's possible release in the US were the perceived communist ties of Yves Montand, who is an absolutely fascinating character, just to talk about him very, very briefly. Um he began as a pop singer. He was a pop singer before he made this movie. This was his first big kind of dramatic big break, as it were. Um, he was mostly known as a musician. He'd actually moved to Paris and had engaged in an affair with Edith Piaf at the uh, Moulin Rouge, where he would perform with her. And he was uh, in love with her for several years. And then she kind of dumped him and he kind of moved on. Um, what's interesting is that he had a flirtation with the Communist Party, mostly due to uh, his wife, who he married, and I'll find the name here, um, Signorette uh, was her name, but she was very left-leaning, very politically active. She kind of drew him in as well. He would apparently take trips to Russia, uh, where he would spend, apparently according to his own account, the long hours of the evening arguing about freedom and liberal democracy with Khrushchev, which is kind of funny to imagine. <laughs> um, 
he he's interesting for several reasons. He kind of soured on communism in his later years. He became a voice of the French right in the 1980s, uh, which was seen as a massive betrayal uh, by the French left. Um, and therefore kind of he became a kind of a figure of controversy around that point. This has nothing to do with the film, but I think it's worth reiterating anyway. After the success of Wages of Fear turned him into an international success story, he actually tried to move to the US and become a film star. One of the films that he made was called Let's Make Love, uh, which was directed by George Cukor. It was highly forgettable, except for the fact that it paired him with Marlon Monroe. Mm. He had an affair with Marlon Monroe, who Uh. described him as the most exciting man in the world. Wait for it, Andrew. Asked about the affair years later, Monton stated, A man can have two... Maybe three love affairs whilst he is married. But three is the absolute maximum. After that, you are cheating. <laughs> well, Which is one of those... Yeah, no, you mentioned, you mentioned that he was fr- from, from France. That is a fair point. That is a fair... <laughs> <laughs> that's ex- that's just the, that explains it all, yeah. He's French. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, um, yeah. but yeah, apparently actually when they were making Let's Make Love, it took some effort to get him a visa because apparently because of his alleged sort of left-leaning kind of sympathies um, that he was deemed a kind of a risk or potential subversive in coming into the United States. And it was considered that was one of the reasons why the US authorities were particularly kind of wary of, of this movie and why they cut it so heavily. Um, they made a lot of cuts in the first hour. They apparently completely removed the character of Bernardo um, the little sort of the kind of small Italian kid, which is kind of interesting because that speaks to, I think, what Andrew was saying about the curdled American dream, because Bernardo is this kind of youthful, enthusiastic young character. He's very optimistic. He's very cheerful. And actually, like he gets a fair amount of development in the first hour. You see him obviously driving with Bamba and there's a sense that Bamba kind of likes him while thinking he's hopelessly naive. You see him later on when he's kind of begging uh, for with Joe at the kind of, you know, at the barber shop asking for some money that will help him get out of there. He actually has a plan and a hope that he can get out of this hellhole. And one of the things I really like about the film is that, like, it basically turns, you know, Bernardo's story into a shaggy dog story where it becomes actually, no, this character that you spent a little bit of time with, this character who, you know, has plans and ambitions and hopes of getting out of this particular hellhole or as Tony described it, you know, eternal purgatory. Actually, no, no, he's not. He's going to be stuck here forever until unless he decides to end his own life, um, which is shocking and brutal and kind of stunning. But it kind of underscores that sense of nihilism at the film's core, where it's like you spent time with this character. You thought that he was going to be a major player, but no, he's not. And there is no way out of this place, basically. And it kind of, again, sets up the idea that happens throughout, which is like whether or not you blow up with a truck full of nitroglycerin, whether or not your best pal runs you over in a truck and then lets you die in his arms as you're driving him home, or whether or not you careen over the edge while dancing to Blue Danub (laughs) while steering a truck down a road. Death will come to you no matter what. There is no escaping it, which is kind of a wonderfully fatalistic worldview, I think. Yeah, and and like... Either way, it'll be fine because it'll be better than the status quo, kind of as as well. It's a very um, the it's 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 very life denying. Yeah, it you know it's it, it, you're right. I think in that I think in a way they would rather be dead, or I think they would rather in a way go out yeah. in this kind of way than stay where they were, you know? And and I think that's that's why I was most interested by the character of Joe, because he starts off, it seems like a successful man who comes to this place and then is compelled to sort of get to know Mario. And he steadily just, 
over the course of the film is as we've said earlier emasculated becomes more of a feminine kind of character in this very strict sort of sense of man and woman and this masculine sort of paradigm but he also becomes much more of a cowardly victim throughout the whole thing and in the end if there's anyone who's death if there's anyone maybe who i think didn't want to die it might be him actually as opposed to all the rest of them because his is his is the most in some ways the most tragic because he's sort of he's sort of killed by mario in a way so i think that, that he he that's why his arc i think in a way i feel like it's it, his is the real character journey of the film he's he's more than the others i think the others are a little bit more fixed points in a way and that they are just traveling from you know to this point of death whereas i don't know there seems to be something different about his character but i but i i i agree i agree with what you're saying yeah you can't imagine that anyone is going to arrive at happiness no no but you get a sense that like joe is one of the rare joe and maybe mario are the characters who want to because you understand that luigi gets that diagnosis right before he kind of takes the truck ride so he's almost dead already and that like if he doesn't go and he stays in his job he's dead but being honest it seems like what he has is pretty advanced anyway and bamba himself is very much scarred by his own experiences which you find you know he alludes to it early on where he's like you can age a hundred years in a single minute but even things when he talks about like you know his father being killed by the nazis and himself working in a salt mine for three years and there's a sense of like he really kind of sees himself as already dead to a certain extent he describes himself as a presentable corpse whereas yeah there's a sense with Joe being the only character who thinks that maybe life is preferable to death um, you know because you have that sense of he's only just arrived in this place whereas Mario has kind of internalized it Mario has kind of accepted like Mario's like there's no escape from here why would you even try like you could look at look at a plane but you could just get somewhere hotter and equally hell like yeah. um, or you could stay here and just sort of while away your hours and accept that this is how things are whereas Joe does arrive and he has these kind of notions and you have that kind of sense of the, the costume because he is the one like that wonderful white suit and one of the things that I actually really like about it is the the again the film's fatalism where you have these jeeps driven by the Americans through the town that just splash mud all over the kind of, you know, the locals, but all over, you know, Joe as well. Joe ruins his white suit when an American jeep drives by completely unaware of him and just splashes up mud all over him because that's how things are. You don't get to have that kind of pristine kind of costume or pristine kind of suit there. And I kind of like that aspect that like Joe, when he's on the mission, has this sudden epiphany of, I really don't want to die. It turns out I actually don't want to die. What are the odds? And I'm now kind of screwed there. I also really like the framing. I like, you know, rear projection is fantastic. It's always good when you see that in a movie because it's something that, again, reminds me kind of old style nostalgia, kind of Hollywood stuff. But I love the shots where Joe's driving. And I don't know whether it's because he's shorter than Yves Mortand, but it always, when he's behind the wheel, it looks like he's always kind of peering over. His eyes are always barely over the steering wheel. So it looks almost like a small child driving this gigantic truck of kind of <laughs> explosives, uh, which is kind of wonderfully juxtaposed with the fact that he probably murdered a dude to get there. And again, the fact that like O'Brien is perfectly cool with him murdering a dude, which is a wonderful thing. It's like, yeah, best not dwell on this too much. You got the job. You could drive a truck. <laughs> yeah, the, the, like you don't ask kind of too much because you're... <laughs> They're, they 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 kind of accept that. Well, whoever you killed, he was probably rubbish, yeah. um, and was probably going to so, die anyway. So what's the difference? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. They probably probably did him a favor. <laughs> Put him they, out of his misery. <laughs> yeah. How Darren? Um, 
All right, it, uh, Tony as well. Kind of how how do we think we would do in this situation? Obviously, Darren, you can't drive, but you could you could you kind of like go in front of the car, like Wave put branches in front of it, <laughs> kind of uh, uh, usher uh, usher us forward <laughs> as we drive through the oil. That's the sort of thing. <laughs> Thanks, thanks, Andrew. I love that I'm the Joe of this podcast. I've heard. Um, try and scramble desperately up up a rock like a human cockroach. Um, I kind of love yeah. that Joe Joe is forward thinking enough to throw his hat away, like Indiana again, like Indiana Jones: The Last Crusade. It's like, well, if he sees my hat blowing in the breeze and kind of trapped in the trees, he'll definitely think that I died and won't have to deal with any consequences of this as I scramble desperately up the side of the mountain. He's he, like, like, yeah, and but he's clambering up the mountain. And he's like, well, whatever I do, I definitely haven't learned my lesson. I'm certainly going to try <laughs> yeah. like being in front of the car again. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, but actually, it's funny you should mention that, because, again, one of the things that, you know, a very personal thing that this movie was about for me, Andrew, thank you for asking, is about why it's a good idea to never learn how to drive a car. Um, <laughs> you're, you're like we, yeah, because you you would never be sent on that yeah, yeah. mission. When, it's also how many people would you have have to kill before they would send you? Yeah, the entire village is just lying dead, and I'm like, yeah, I'll take my two thousand dollars, please. No, no, but I mean, I mean, in a, in a broader sense, it kind of like. One of the reasons why I don't drive is A, because I live in a city with great public transport and therefore don't have to drive. B, know a lot of people who do drive and can therefore call in favors to help them drop me places. Thank you for that, Andrew, by the way. Um, and also C, um, is because I, I, I have a disposition where I'm kind of inherently nervous about being in a position where I could be responsible for killing somebody uh, through, you know, factors that are not necessarily in my control. So driving a huge hunk of metal that travels at high velocity um, in a space where other people are doing the same thing, and that kind of concept as you sh- as you should be, Darren. Uh, like everybody should be uh, terrified of driving. It's crazy, oh, yeah, definitely. And I, I I say this as a new as a new driver. I've only been driving six months, and it's when you first get behind a wheel when you're learning as well. It is the scariest thing in the world. You just assume that everyone is going to die at your at the hands of your incompetence. You know, you really do. Yeah, so. I can't. I can't believe it works. Yeah, I know. You know. Yeah, and and that's kind of that's that's one of the things that kind of I don't think it was intentional. I don't think it was intended, and I don't think that anybody's going to write a book about like the extent to which the wages of fear is about why we shouldn't drive cars. <laughs> but on a personal and intimate level, the wages of fear was one of those movies where it absolutely resonated with me that yes, getting behind the wheel of a vehicle puts you in a situation <laughs> where your life is absolutely not entirely in your control, and the lives of other people are also not entirely in your control, but somehow also your responsibility and i kind of that was something that really struck with me throughout so like while you know obviously the bits where it's like okay the road is corrugated so we have to get up to 40 miles an hour and get over it or we got to reverse over this jetty so we can do the proper turn we're all very intense even the sequences of characters just sitting behind the wheel with the you know the 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 mountains of nitroglycerin in the trunk behind them were like dara's like this is really uncomfortable i really don't like this I was like, I'm with Joe. Yeah. Can we pull over and get a sandwich, please? Um, <laughs> yeah, the the amount of time I spent gritting my teeth and like holding my head and just um, shaking like forward and back, um, like large stretches of this movie, definitely. 
Shall I just tell you that the the bit like I had a similar feeling was the moment where they're Joe and Mario are in the truck and Joe's like getting his uh French shag as he calls it together and he just blows away just before the explosion and I did my, I did a breath intake because I kind of knew what was coming in a way and I, I that was fantastically done it was it, it it was like it was like that first pulverizing blast when you have a mushroom cloud go up you know and you've talked about the nuclear thing before and I was like oh that's wow that really hit me you know more than I thought it would I suppose but yeah Oh, it's fantastically like well put together in terms of like editing, in terms of structure, in terms of pacing. Like to to pick another example, the sequence where they're blowing up the boulder, right? And you have like Bamba who is very carefully decanting the nitroglycerin into the hole that's been drilled in there. But you have the sound, the use of sound in that sequence, because there's not a lot of ambient music in this. There's not a lot of background music in this. There is music that's played from radios and stuff like that, and there's kind of like diegetic sound, but there's not a lot of non-diegetic sound there. So you have the sequence where you have the rhythm where it's almost like the heartbeat of the film because the film has this kind of continue it's again it's it's like the sound of an engine which makes sense given that all the characters are literally being driven forward you know that there's no going back and even that sense that you know like if if joe murdered a guy well it doesn't matter because this is going to happen anyway so why should we bother objecting to it but like you have this kind of sense of like the world having a pulse or a heartbeat to it that exists almost independent of like the will of human beings. So that sequence where Bamba is decanting the nitroglycerin into the gap. So you have like, you know, Mario who's drilling, sorry, Luigi, sorry, who's drilling kind of on the rock. And that gives you a kind of a constant sense, a constant sound, a constant rhythm to it. You have um, Mario playing with the, uh, the matchbox with his kind of finger drumming off it. You have Joe wrapping his fingers kind of against the inside of the door. And all of that kind of gives you a sense of the world kind of having a, a rhythm that kind of is not intentional. It's not like they aren't people are doing this subconsciously. They aren't planning to do it. And again, it, ha- it happens earlier later on with the, the oil where like Andrew mentioned that like one of the terrifying things about that scene is the way in which the, the oil pump has literally just been torn. It's been ripped. It's like somebody grabbed, you know, a piece of paper and tore it. It's been opened that readily. But the oil keeps coming out of it, but it keeps coming out of it not in a constant stream, but in a pulse. It's like a beat, 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 a metronome. And it's kind of happening throughout the scene as well, which is very much like a heartbeat kind of within the film itself. And that happens throughout and it kind of it makes those sequences, or at least for me, makes them much tenser because it, it sounds almost like I can hear my own heartbeat. I can kind of feel my own pulse kind of moving in rhythm. And the movie is kind of doing that with it as well. And it's it's very striking. It's it's kind of on tender hooks. I was kind of like almost, you know, when you make fists, but you don't realize you've made fists until they start hurting. That kind of feeling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It does give you that. It really does. There's a, there's a palpable sense throughout it that it just it just grabs you particularly in that you know in that last hour and a half really when they're on the mission i I, but i i do think that this film and it would be interesting to watch the sort of american cut of this in a way because i do think this film benefits from that extra hour at the beginning i feel like you by the time they they go on this mission you really sort of understand a lot of the dynamics you understand who these people are you get you've got a real sense of where they are in this world and I think it's enriched by having that that fairly slow hour, you know, at the beginning to sort of set it all up and lay it all out, really. So I, I, I appreciate the fact that it's a film that 
takes its time to get you to where you to get you to that point of tension to get you to that point where you're sort of on tenterhooks because i feel like if it hadn't done that you wouldn't have that same level of payoff you know when you get when you get to the whole sequence with the oil and then waiting i mean that is fantastic that whole sequence is brilliant from start to finish and you really feel like you're in that mire with them at that point and i think a lot of that is to do with the setup in that first hour and like as a as an audience, it 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 kind of I I feel like it it's it almost kind of references the audience because it talks about like Joe is saying kind of like oh I'd much rather be driving than yeah. like you know sitting here watching watching you mm-hmm. do it because uh, like and as 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 the audience like we're 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 not characters in the story we're just. Uh, watching kind of like waiting for something um we we can't occupy ourselves with with just the 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 act of um of driving or uh, you know um that we're 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 afraid as well mm. and that's all we have to do that's it but we're as subject to the whims of fate as the the characters are you know which is kind of terrifying of itself which is you know the characters no matter what they do are subject to the arbitrary whims of whatever is going to happen but we as an audience are in exactly the same position like there's no barrier between us and the characters in a sense which is kind of interesting you know we we obviously watching a film have no control over its direction but it's rare to see a film that is so open about how little control the characters within that have and how you know whether or not they are driving or whether or not as you point out they're like joe sitting there watching somebody else drive um they are still completely powerless and have no no impact just very quickly in terms of what tony mentioned in terms of like the opening hour this is kind of interesting because it gets at one of the things that i i think I, I respect that opening hour a lot. I think it's very good. I think it's very important. I think that absolutely the following 90 minutes don't work as well. I think I actually, one of the reasons I prefer Sorcerer is because it kind of cuts a lot of that stuff out or it kind of reduces it or kind of cuts it down a little bit. Uh, but one of the things that I do find interesting about that is that, and this kind of gets at what Pauline Kael said um, about the movie being something where what characters do doesn't matter. So it's the only thing that matters, that kind of paradox there, which is that like one of the arguments about um, Clouseau as a filmmaker is that he is completely uh, nihilistic. He's completely divorced from any sense of authority or kind of any sense of kind of having a strong moral viewpoint beyond the universe being a cruel and arbitrary place. And what I find interesting and kind of fascinating, what I think is great about that is that it means that he has no judgment on his characters, um, which means that his characters can be complete assholes. They can be completely unlikable, um, to use that kind of term that's often used in film criticism. They can be unsympathetic. They can be shallow. They can be mean. They can be murderers. Like, Joe is very clearly a murderer. I don't think that he left the dude passed out after drinking him under the table. I think it's quite unambiguous that he killed the dude and took his place on the, on the kind of mission. Um, and even like Mario's treatment of kind of Linda as well. But I think that, like, what I like about the film is that because the film itself is so bleak and so arbitrary, it has a kind of a weird compassion in a sense of these characters are all cockroaches and they're completely arbitrary. You know, they're subject to the whims of fate. But because of that, you can have empathy for them because it doesn't matter if they're good people or bad people. Like, Bernardo is probably the best person in the film they're still going to end up the same way. What they do isn't going to have any impact on how things turn out for them in the grand scheme of things. 
So there's no reason for you not to care about them or not to judge them as they are. Like, you don't have to impose a moral judgment on them because you think that they might be rewarded for bad behavior or anything like that. You can just accept them kind of as they're rendered, which I, I really like about the film. Yeah, yeah, it's... I, I just, I find I, I find it really fascinating, really, in how it, how it does it, how it approaches... The, the, I suppose the way the audience are are invited to to feel in terms of these characters, like in in, in one, it's it's. I felt more attached to them and the, what they were going through than I did with the characters in Sorcerer, um, because it feels like Sorcerer really does try and keep you at a remove. And I know we'll talk more about this next week, but with with the with this film, I felt really involved with with them, and I I, I you know I. They're not all necessarily likable people, but it, there's a, there's a there's a sort of tragic morality to all these characters. A lot of them, anyway. There's a sort of sadness to them, and I I was I was really drawn to that. Maybe it's because I am a bit of a misanthrope, actually, and a little bit of a pessimist. <laughs> I am. I actually am. You might not think that, but I actually am. Um, but I think there is there is a lot that I think comes out of the screen in terms of that really can, can connect you to these characters that's 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 what i got from it anyway um i will add one thing that i uh i, th- I you 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 guys probably know about this already but there, there was another remake called violent road in um 1958 uh which wasn't like a direct like it's not like like you said a direct sort of remake in the same way as sorcerer is but it was uh also known as Hell's Highway, and it was directed by Howard W. Koch. I think that's how you say his name, Koch. Um, <laughs> and uh, stars Brian Keith, Efren Zimbalist Jr., various other people. And it's uh, I- I've not wa- I've watched a little bit of it because I- I- uh, Whisper It it is on YouTube, but uh, I have watched a little bit of it. But it-, it it seems a much more of a very low budget sort of more straightforward conception to the wages of fear and sorcerer but it, it, it may be a little interesting artifact to go and check out i think uh, made towards the end of the 50s and from an american perspective as opposed to a french one yeah less satra in there less existential yeah. Kind of <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah 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 um, <laughs> less of this it none of this matters nobody knows they never knew um sort of stuff happening there as well um actually quite quite just on that it's it's kind of interesting how the film is that the wages of fear and the title of the film and this idea and it's articulated i think by the american character who kind of storms out of the the meeting when o'brien is kind of pitching them on kind of <laughs> i love that i love that they're like i'll come to the meeting i'll hear your pitch but the moment you demonstrate how nitric listen works i'm out <laughs> um, but the sequence where he's talking about like fear as something that stays with you oh the texan yes yep um, I think his name is Dick. I have Dick written down here for some reason. But where he's basically <laughs> like, yes, fear, fear is infectious. Fear is, maybe it was just a judgment. Maybe I was doing that thing and making a judgment on a character. It's ruining O'Brien's pitch meeting. He probably rehearsed that, Dick. Um, but yes, so he says, you know, fear is something that stays with you. It's contagious. It's like smallpox. It, it'll turn your hair white and it'll kind of, you'll live with it forever. And a kind of interesting, again, in the context of this being a 50s movie, 
in the shadow of the bomb, in the shadow of mankind having the capacity to destroy the world completely, you know, for the first point in their history. And kind of like coming out of the devastation of the Second World War, where, you know, large populations in Europe, in France, in Germany, in Italy, had watched large parts of their world being kind of destroyed and burnt down, and seen others on the news that were destroyed completely. It's mad, Ashley. I wonder, like, how, how long will it take from humans being able to destroy the world to us destroying the world <laughs> that's a very is it a matter of time it's a very wages of fear sort of thought and again you get the sense of yeah, yeah. the cold war is over now is the time to do it some <laughs> dickhead yeah. dancing around inside a nuclear you know sort of like launch shelter to the tune of fat boy slim will accidentally hit the right combination <laughs> of buttons and therefore doom us all into existence yeah doom, doom us all sort of to uh, to destruction yeah yeah no, but what you forget is that there's there's all sorts of systems in place to prevent this sort of thing from happening, Derek. <laughs> like, you know, like, like, like very kind of rare incidents, like um, the same sort of systems that prevent, you know, uh, uh, financial crises and um, worldwide <laughs> pandemics. And yeah, those structures exist, thing. luckily to keep us all yeah, safe. Yeah, exactly. Um, to keep us all safe, Darren. <laughs> Thank you for that reassurance, um, Andrew. Uh, <laughs> but, um, and then one more thing that I will note, a 250 trope, food waste. It's not really food waste, but that champagne bottle. I really hope that Mario, sorry, Luigi, yes. didn't have to pay for the full bottle of champagne after watching. Yeah, it. and Bimba's uh, glass as well. And yeah, yeah. the... Um, it's a, You can tell yeah, it's a French film because there's a lot of alcohol waste rather than food. Because this is what yeah, we do. Um, oh, seltzer water waste. Alcohol and cigarette waste yeah. as well, yeah. Um, but yeah, and seltzer water. Like, do they seltzer. ever eat? <laughs> or, do they, or do they just <laughs> drink smoke? Like, Lu- Lu- Luigi mentions that he's, he's making pasta. Yeah, and Luigi is making bread, it seems, at the start, unless he's doing concrete work at home. <laughs> this is how it got in your lungs. <laughs> we, we told you, you have to stop eating concrete, damn it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I did find that scene confusing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, um, is there anything else we want to talk about? Anything that we haven't discussed already? No, I mean, Whistling Jew was good. I thought it was a Whistling Jew, but it wasn't. It was, it was, it was them kind of saying hello to each other in French. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's great because Joe's like finally somebody I can talk to, which is not the most racist that I'm going to be in the next fifteen minutes. Um, and again, that's one of the things where you're like, ah, film. I wonder if the characters are being racist or if the film is kind of because there's a lot of that sort of like people are naked in in South America, and isn't that great? That by the way, all that was also cut for American markets uh, as well. All that sort of National Geographic sort of... Uh, the weird sequence where the woman is showering and the tarantula appears for no reason whatsoever, aside from possibly an excuse to have a naked woman in the background of a shot during exposition. Yeah. No, it, like, I, I I feel like if they were going to have something for Daddy, they'd already kind of do it. There was, uh, actually, you never really know. You can't really put yourself back in the place of kind of... Um, <laughs> Yeah, French like, film director in nineteen fifty one. Yeah, well yeah, what was exciting for people back then? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, anyway, no 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 nothing nothing too much more to 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 add, I guess. 
All right. We normally do at the end of the podcast as we wrap up, as we ask our guests to recommend something for listeners, something you're enjoying at the moment. So it could be a podcast. It could be a film. It could be something related to the film we just watched. It could be something else entirely. So something that you're enjoying at the moment. I give you time to think, Tony. I'm going to ask Andrew. That's just something. No. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Oh, no. Um, I'm I'm uh, I won't recommend it, but I'll, I'll tell you what I'm what I'm what I'm doing there. Because the because of the coronavirus, like you can do things that take an awful lot of time. Um, so, um, and because because I now work in in um, uh, not in an office, I can listen to music. Um, so I've been listening to the Ring Cycle because it's like fifteen <laughs> hours long, <laughs> or something like that. It might be longer, actually. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's so. That's what I'm doing. Would I recommend it? I don't know. There's that quote about some um, uh, recent bad movie, and it, it it only being kind of eighty minutes, and that the ring cycle was was kind of fifteen or seventeen or nineteen hours long, and that the lesson is that bad art is getting shorter. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, like I've, I've it. it, it it feels like about a day ago that the Ride of the Valkyries played. Really? <laughs> the only... <laughs> what? The only recognisable one. Play the hits! Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like going um, to a concert and Wagner's playing all this new stuff. Um, <laughs> um, all right, then, Tony. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go for a film recommendation. Uh, a film... I. I confess i can't remember whether you've talked about that was fairly recent you know if it's hit the uh, the list but uh the invisible man lee wannell's the invisible man the new uh, version of that which i watched um in lockdown uh obviously because we're all in lockdown right now uh, uh and i thought that was fantastic i thought it was absolutely brilliant film i thought it was uh, a really clever way of updating a very very old story you know a classic universal monster story and framing it in the context of um, abuse, toxic masculinity, you know, um, and the 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 dis- disbelief of female victims of of uh, you know all kinds of domestic abuse and and all these things. I just thought it was it was so clever, such a clever film, and executed in a brilliant way. There's a particular sequence halfway through roughly in a restaurant that made me gasp in yeah. a way that I've not gasped at a film in a long time. So I I just cannot recommend that enough. I think it's probably one, if not the best film so far this year, it's one of the best. I'd absolutely second that recommendation, actually. And, and kind of on the subject of kind of universal social conscious horror movies as well promising young woman which i'm not sure when it's getting a distribution date as well that's very worth seeking out as well that's the kind of um rape revenge movie with kerry mulligan um which is kind of striking it's one of the movies that i imagine people are going to have very strong feelings about one way or the other i thought it was amazing i thought it was impressive intelligent and clever um and just something that was one of my favorite movies as well and the invisible man is also fantastic uh very quickly in terms of my recommendations um i was at the the dublin film fest a little while ago so these will be popping up on stream Streaming, a couple of foreign films um saint maud 
uh, which I think is getting pushed back, uh, but may go direct to video on demand as well, where it's again to get a chance. Uh, Le Mystery of Henry Pick, which I recommended a couple of weeks ago, is a French film that I really liked. And Laura, which is one of those great uh, German movies about pushy parents, um, which is, is also fantastic. It's really well constructed. And again, almost bleakly, brutally nihilist. Um, as an antidote to that, I would also recommend It Must Be Heaven, which was the Palestinian nominee at the Oscars last year uh, and is very, very worth seeking out. Um, in the meantime, Tony, if people are looking to find you online, where can they find you? Oh, there's not much going on with me. I'm very low-key, really. <laughs> no, I, uh, I run a podcast network called We Made This, at We Made This Pod. Um, and there's lots going on over there. Films, TV, popular culture, music, all kinds of things like that. So um, you can find it also at uh, wemadethispod.com. So go over there and check out uh, some of the uh, shows we're doing, some of the podcasts. And if you want to find me, and I've got my own website, ajblackwriter.com, where I do a bit of film and TV writing and stuff. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at ajblackwriter, where uh, you'll find links to that writing and uh, all sorts of things like that, keeping you updated. So that's basically me, really. And actually, next week, uh, you very kindly invited us to, you know, we had you over. Next week, you're going to have us over, and we're going to be joining you on The New Wave uh, to talk about William Friedkin's Sorcerer. Yes, and The New Wave isn't fully launched yet. It's still in production, shall we say. Um, so it won't necessarily... Uh, the, the Sorcerer episode won't necessarily be immediate on my end, but... Um, it will, uh, I dare say, it will come out uh, for you with you with you guys on this podcast sooner, which is great. So yeah, it's going to be a really fun podcast that talking about the American New Wave, New Hollywood era, and I mean, there's a whole list of of films that I just like. Sal I'm salivating over the thought of doing them. So yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a lot of fun, and Sorcerer will be a big big one to discuss because <laughs> especially after this, there's a, there's a lot to talk about. <clears throat> Well, yeah, we're 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 salivating too. It's it's uh, it's good to have a a a, a sneak peek. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> cheers. Yeah. Um, so we'll be doing that next week, and then in a fortnight, we'll be kicking off our anime April, or perhaps just this year, anime um, <laughs> Castle in the Sky. Um, take it easy, guys. We'll be back next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Tony. Thank you. Bye. Bye. And then boom!